Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. So allow me to read these verses. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. <coughs> Excuse me. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwelt on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heavens in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Well, again, I shared that we are kind of at a a dramatic pause uh, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. We saw that same thing happen between the sixth and the seventh seal. Uh, and so just kind of a reminder where we were last week. Last week, uh, John heard things that he was not allowed to record. And we kind of scratch our head and say, well, why would God tell John something he won't let us know? But he heard the seven uh, angels to boast, you know, he heard this, what he knew to, you know, was intelligible because he's about to write it down, but uh, the voice from heaven said, do not write this. So he didn't. But then the strong angel had a small book and he was commanded to take the book and to eat it. And it was sweet uh, to the taste in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And we talked about this a little bit last week that, you know, the, the sweetness of the message that he was given uh, was that God's judgment was coming. And had, had started to come. And it was an answer to prayer. We talked last week that it was an answer to the prayers of the saints who asked earlier in the uh, book of Revelation. How long, O God, 
till you take revenge on the evil committed against us. But it's also bitter in knowing that now the multitudes who have rejected God would receive their eternal judgment. So there's always that bittersweet when it comes to God's judgment. But now John's about to experience something else. He is told by the one in heaven, take a measuring stick. And it was given to him. And it says, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. But leave out the court which is the outside of the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot for the holy city for 42 months. Now, why would God tell John to measure the temple? Do you think God doesn't know what size the temple is? Obviously he does. This is the temple in heaven. This is not the temple on earth. This is not the temple that has been rebuilt in Jerusalem. But what we see is that he is commanding John to measure it. We don't see that John actually measures it. But there's something about measuring it, especially in the Old Testament, I mean in the, in the biblical days, that it really talks more about ownership. Okay, let me ask you something. How do you know what property you own? Your deed. If you look at that deed, it has specific measurements of all the little angles of the, the boundaries of your property. And so if anything falls inside the boundaries on that deed, it belongs to you. Exact same thing here. God tells John to measure the inside of the temple with its altar. Why? Because anything inside the temple basically are those who are worshiping him and belong to him. But he excludes those outside of the temple. Why? Because those are the ones who have rejected him and uh, are not his. And so, pretty simple explanation to it is that the measuring of the temple and the altar basically represents ownership. Those inside belong to God. Those outside are those who rejected him and not his own. Then we look at uh, another puzzling thing. Uh, verses 3 through 4, first time we hear about these the two witnesses. Now, who are these two witnesses and what is their purpose? Now, we've already gone through all the breaking of the seals, the first six trumpets. But these two witnesses should have already been present. And we'll discuss that in just a minute. So, one thing I need to always say is that if God doesn't tell us who they are, we don't need to know. We can make all sorts of speculation. I'll just go ahead and share what other people have said, but we don't know who these two witnesses are. Some say that they're Moses and Elijah. Why? Because they were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, they were the ones that Jesus entertained. Uh, so you would think that they would probably be it. Well, not necessarily. Others claim that they're Enoch and Elijah. Why? Neither one of those actually died. They were taken up to heaven. Well, some say that they were Joshua and Zerubbabel. The reason why, if you go to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 3 through 14, it describes these as being golden lampstands and olive trees. What was special about their lives? After the captivity in Babylon, they returned, and they were the ones who rebuilt the temple and the walls around Jerusalem. And so, when you look at Revelation with the rebuilding of a new temple... A lot of people speculate that they were the ones. But guess what? We don't know. It could be anybody. It could be none of them. No. 
I think personally it's none of these. I think these are simply messengers of God. Now they stand at the, as the golden lamp stands and the olive trees. I think this is symbolic of the presence of being with God. You know, the lamp stands are always representing his light shining out. The olive uh, oil or the olive trees are the oil that would light the lamp stand. So you can't have one without the other. And so one was the fuel for the lampstand, the other was the, uh, what took place with the burning of the lamps. And so, personally, I don't think we could possibly put a name on any of these. I think they're just simply messengers of God. But look how they're described. They're described as dressed in sackcloth. Now, anytime that you look at any, anybody being dressed in sackcloth, it is always a sign of mourning. It's a sign of uh, separation where you get along with God and you mourn over sin. And so the picture is that they are mourning over the sins of the people, mourning over the sinful rejection that these people have of God. So why are they there? Well, they're, they're witnesses. That's what God calls them, the two witnesses. Now, we see that they are on the earth for 1260 days, which is the same thing as three and a half years, or 42 months, whichever way you want to look at it. Now, if you, if you use our calendar today and you multiplied it by three and a half, you would get a higher number than 1260 days. But the Jews used more or less a lunar calendar, basically a 30-day calendar. You do that 12 months and you have 360 days. And you do that two and a half, three and a half times, you have 1260 days or four and a half months or three and a half years. Uh, sorry, 42 months or three and a half years. So notice who these are. We don't know their names, but they are witnesses of God. And they are there to proclaim the truth. That's simply it. They're proclaiming the truth of the Word of God, which would be the gospel. Notice that they are invincible. Nobody can harm them. For three and a half years, nothing can touch them. If anybody tried to harm them, fire would spew from their mouths and kill whoever it is that's trying to harm them. Now, we talked about this, I think, last week. To die by fire is probably one of the worst deaths I can ever imagine. I know of a couple of people who have died uh, as a result of fire, and the agony that they were going through before God took them home was intense. I cannot imagine it. And so... Uh, this was an intense way to put your enemies to death uh, for the fire to flow out of their mouths. But they also had other miraculous powers. It basically says that they could shut up the sky and not allow rain to fall. Well, do you remember uh, a guy named Elijah? And King Ahab was living totally out of God's will. And so Elijah basically prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years. Just so happens that they're prophesying for three and a half years. Well, he's, God was using Elijah to get their attention. And it was only after the, uh, Elijah had the defeat of the prophets of Baal that he knew that God was ready to let it rain again. He prayed for it to rain and if you remember, he sent his messengers out and they said, well, there's a little bit cloud. And then they said, well, it looks like a little fist. And then sooner or later, the rains came. And so, you know, it's kind of that allusion to Elijah's power of God uh, to cause the rain to stop for three and a half years. 
And then he also says, and they had the power to strike the earth with every plague. Well, where do we see stories about plague? Back in Egypt, I'm, uh, back in uh, Exodus with Moses and Pharaoh. And we talk about all the different plagues and they even mentioned some of them. It says and they had the power to turn water into blood, to strike the earth with every plague. And so we look and we see they're given this same power. Why did God give Moses this power to do these plagues? Well, basically, it was showing the power of God, that Moses was a servant of God, because no man could cause these things to happen. And it was also to try to break Pharaoh's heart. Remember, every time you saw a mention of Pharaoh, when he started to weaken, all of a sudden it says, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not let the people go. Well, Guess whose else hearts were hardened? The people on earth at that time. And so either way you look at it, these two witnesses were prophesying and they were given great powers to prove that the power that they were doing these things in were not their own, but the power of God. Now, the word prophecy in this situation is the same word that we get the word martyr from. And so they prophesy knowing that because of their prophecy, that their eventual end result was going to be death. They knew that that was going to happen. They knew that their prophecy, their faithfulness to the Lord would end in death. That same word can also mean uh, proclaiming the truth. So they're proclaiming the truth, knowing that there's going to be persecution and even execution as a result. So then the prophecy ends. After three and a half years, of the two witnesses being invincible, they came to a point where God allowed the beasts out of the abyss to kill them. We look at this Antichrist. We look at uh, this powerful being on earth, this one who has promised peace so that he could uh, gain the, the respect and the admiration and the following of the people on earth. The people wanted to obey the beast. They wanted to believe him instead of Almighty God and his witnesses. So the people on earth were sick and tired of hearing these witnesses because they continue to preach that their sins deserve death, that there would be a judgment upon them, that God had the answer through his son Jesus, and they did not want to hear it anymore. And so when the beast, the Antichrist, came out of the abyss, he had the power, God allowed him to have the power to execute these two witnesses. So that really brings us to that midpoint of the seven years of tribulation because it was at that point after the two witnesses are killed, very soon after, the beast will basically announce, I am God. He will desecrate the temple and he will proclaim himself to be God himself. And the, 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 the term of peace will end and he will reign with terror. Anyone who rejects him will be executed. And so the two witnesses prophesied for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. By the end of that, uh, as the people were sick and tired, the beast came forth. God allowed him at that point for the witnesses to be killed. And so we look. Can you imagine executing somebody and then leaving their body just out and refusing for anybody to be allowed to take it? I mean, they hated Jesus, right? 
but at least they allowed uh, the men to come and take the body of Jesus and lay him in a tomb. But they would not even allow these two witnesses to be laid in a tomb, to, to get their bodies off the street. Now, John wrote this some 2,000 years ago. Did they have closed-circuit televisions back then? I don't think they did. But the world will know that these witnesses have been killed. So I think we're looking at the, the time in, that we could see that happen. You know, with the advent of social media and cameras on every phone and everything like that, I mean, you cannot go anywhere without being caught on television. I mean, criminals are often caught simply because they did something and a camera somewhere actually saw them do it. And the police are able to get the footage and they can find out who this person was and where they went and arrest them and that's the end of it. Well, I have a feeling that you know, every news station on earth is probably going to have uh, an extra feed just looking at these dead bodies laying there. And they're celebrating. There is celebration throughout the world because they're dead. Now, that's pretty gross, isn't it? And it's basically that they are celebrating that they can no longer prophesy or preach about Jesus. How close are we in our world today for that to happen? I mean, there are multitudes of nations that will arrest you and throw you into a hard labor camp or throw you into isolation or just go ahead and execute you or, or torture you because you're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our own nation, especially in certain areas of our nation, it's getting to the point where you will be ridiculed, persecuted, asked to leave, asked to shut up, escorted out if you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm afraid we're getting there pretty fast. But it was as if they were having a pagan Christmas. It says they were not only celebrating, but they were giving gifts to each other in celebration. Now, that's how bad things had gotten. But God nicknamed that city, which we know is Jerusalem. He nicknamed it Sodom because of their sexual perversion of sinfulness. And he also called it Egypt. Why? Because Egypt held his people slaves spiritually and physically. And so now the people of every tongue, tribes, nations, everywhere will be able to look upon these dead bodies. There again, I believe the closed circuit TV will be on them constantly. And anybody who wants to can look at them and say, all right, they're gone. We no longer have to listen to them anymore. And then God does something. Look at verses 11 and 12. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon them, uh, those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven, into the cloud, and their enemies watched them. Now, I believe there's a reason why these two witnesses were not entombed. Because God wanted to make a powerful statement. God allowed them to be uh, desecrated, not allowed to be entombed, so that he 
for the whole world to see, could breathe the breath of life back into these two witnesses, and they would stand up alive again. Now, can you imagine the reaction from the world seeing that? Oh, no, they're going to start preaching again. We thought we were rid of them. That's not what took place. Great fear did fall upon those who watched them. Fear because I'm sure they thought that they would start killing people who tried to approach them and they would cast plagues on them again and they would continue to preach uh, this gospel that they didn't want to hear. Well, that's not what happened. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they rose into the cloud to be back with the Lord. So they had fulfilled their purpose and God brought them home. Now, what happened after that? Well, we look and God's response was that he sent a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. And as a result, 7,000 people were killed. Now, this is another one of those things that always puzzles me about Revelation. Well, the city is Jerusalem. Pretty much everything that happens in Revelation is pretty much centered around the city of Jerusalem. And yet, if you look, many of the things that we've already talked about talk about the entire earth. And so, if all these people throughout the world are celebrating and giving gifts to each other, why is Israel the only place where the earthquake takes place and 7,000 people are killed as a result? Don't know. God could have caused an earthquake in every city, in every place throughout the world, and caused you know, equivalent numbers of people to be killed. But there again, where are all the cameras? Where's all the focus right now? Israel. So if God can do that in Israel, people know he can do it anywhere. And so we look and we see that God is showing his message, showing his power, that he is still in control. That even they thought that they had killed the witnesses. He brought them back to life. He has the power to do that. And he took them back up to be with them. And then as a result of his anger, his wrath, his judgment, he brought an earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city and 7,000 people were killed. But what happens to the people? What's their response to this? Well, it sounds real good. I think we may be reading it a little bit wrong way it sounds. They were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Sounds like all of Jerusalem repented. You think that really happened? Well, we'd like to think that all of Jerusalem would, would have just said, okay, I'm going to bow on my face. I'm going to worship the Lord Almighty God. And I'm going to accept his son, Jesus. But we know that's not the case. I know that there are some that will be saved, but it, well, I ask the question, does this mean that they all surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Or does it simply mean that they at least admitted uh, that after seeing these witnesses that and they came back to life and ascended into the heavens, that this was truly an act of God, at least giving God credit for what he is doing. Now, just because you believe in God, that there is a God and that he has all power, does not mean that you are surrendered to him or follow him as your Lord. And so I think it's possible that there were some there were some who finally accepted this message of salvation. They've been hearing it for three and a half years. Their hearts have been hardened. But when they see these two witnesses come back to life, ascend into the heavens, they say, if that God that they were preaching about has that kind of power, 
Maybe I need to listen. Maybe I need to accept it. So I do believe that there were some, but obviously there's not enough. I believe that it'll be evident that the majority of the world uh, continue to deny Jesus. And like I said, this is basically leading up to that midpoint. Uh, very soon we would know that uh, the Antichrist will desecrate the temple, proclaim that he is God, and basically proclaim that unless you either have the mark of the beast or on the hands or the head and worship him as God, then you will basically be killed. So, verse 14, if you remember, back after, let's see, after the fourth trumpet sounds, that eagle flies over the heavens and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he talks about the worst is yet to come. Well, we've already had the first woe, which was the fifth trumpet. This sixth trumpet that we've had this dramatic pause in, uh, basically he is saying that now this second woe has ended, is past. Behold, the third woe, the seventh trumpet, is coming quickly. Well, we'll be getting to that seventh trumpet very soon. So, again, the book of Revelation is a unique book. It is prophetic. And the hardest thing that we have as, as human beings is we like to read novels that kind of start at one year or one date and it travels forward. Revelation doesn't do that. And we're definitely going to see that next week. That Revelation does not follow a chronological, uh, chronological order. It's kind of here and there. I mean, we've already seen that there was this mass of people under the altar and they're crying out, how long, O oh God, will you wait until you seek your vengeance on those who have persecuted us? And remember that angel came to John and said, who are these people? He says, you know I don't. He says, those are the martyrs of the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. So if we hadn't even gotten to that point, we've already dealt with something that's already taken place later. And so what we're seeing is that what John sees is not chronological. It is here, 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 but it is all a part of what God's uh, judgment is going to be doing, taking place. Well, if you will, let's bow together and we'll close with prayer. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for your presence in our lives. And Lord, even when we struggle to understand all that is found in this book of Revelation, Lord, we are praying for you to give us clear understanding and wisdom and knowledge and just guide us as we see that there is going to be a day of judgment. And Lord, when that day comes, Lord, we can rest assured that we know beyond a doubt that we belong to you and Lord, that our eternity is secure in you. Lord, there are multitudes, the large majority of our world today that, that do not have that relationship with you. And Lord, we know that we give to missions and we uh, do various things that we pray are being used so that others are being witnesses for you. Lord, may we be your witnesses as well to share the love of Christ wherever we go and to allow your spirit to, to fill us with your words of love and comfort and compassion. And Lord, we pray that your spirit will take whatever is said by us and Lord, that you will penetrate the heart of those who hear it and Lord, that you will draw them to that gift of salvation. Lord, guide us in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.